Right, we've got some really uh, exciting stuff to consider this morning. Uh, Andy tells me you're working your way through the spiritual disciplines, and what he's asked me to look at this morning is the spiritual discipline of evangelism. And uh, I hope in our treatment this morning it's not too heavy, but it's helpful. And uh, in anything I say, please forgive me if I come across as sort of knowing it all. I certainly don't. Um, I, I've picked up one or two things, but I still regard myself as a beginner in how we effectively evangelize the world and our district. So I'm just sharing some of the things that I think the Lord's laid on my heart this morning. So I'm going to read uh, the key text this morning, which is the back end of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it's chapter 28, and it's the very last four verses. So it's Matthew 28, and beginning to read at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Amazing stuff. And Lord, as we look at that, I just pray as Brad's prayed, just help us to unpack that. May we find something in there fresh that helps our walk with you and helps this congregation as they seek to be the people of God in this district. In Jesus' name. Amen. I like to always set out a road map where we're going, so we're going to first of all in a minute consider some working definitions for evangelism and discipleship. You've probably got those sewn up already, but it's, it's no bad thing just to have some working definitions. We're going to pick our way through the passage, um, and we're going to consider some of the effective enablers to uh, disciple-making, and touch maybe uh, inferentially on some of the less helpful things that creep in to our Christian lives so that our disciple-making maybe is inhibited. Uh, I love Rebecca Manley Pippet's image of evangelism as being salt scattered out of a salt shaker. Uh, you know, salt when you put it on some chips. Oh, I'm allowed to say that. Are you a healthy church? And, uh, uh, you know, when you put it, it just brings a bit of flavor. It's really good. And uh, th that lovely analogy of just being sprinkled around the area. We're not going to go into that in huge detail, but that's the kind of underlying theme. I'm not proposing to give you a detailed how to bring someone to Christ, but it's more really as a stimulus to consider our spiritual DNA individually and corporately. In other words, if somebody uh, saw you as a stick of rock, seaside rock, and sliced you down, would the letters around there say, not Western Supermare, but would they say, disciple maker or not? That's really where I'm coming from this morning. Is that one of the things that defines us individually, but also particularly you corporately together as you seek to make Christ known here? And then I'll briefly touch on our expectations or not of the Holy Spirit um, showing up to assist us in our uh, evangelistic endeavours. And a warning. I'm going to ask you two questions, and by the end... 
there might be three things you remember. One is the man broke the pulpit. Uh, the second, um, he asked a funny question, which is, what did we smell like? And secondly, he asked how beautiful our feet were. Now that's got you thinking. Okay, so let's just consider evangelism to start with. Um, there's a million ways of defining it, but the, what I would say is evangelism essentially focuses on proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It comes from the old English Godspell, good news or glad tidings, and it's about the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus, including the forgiveness of sins, announcement of peace with God, and the hope of eternal life through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That, for me, is evangelism in a nutshell. Discipleship has a slightly different facet, and it finds its roots in the old rabbinic traditions, the old Jewish traditions of um, a teacher to whom somebody would voluntarily attach themselves. So let's say Brad was Rabbi Brad, and I liked his style of teaching, or I liked I liked Rabbi Adrian's style of teaching. Uh, I'd find out where they lived, and I might journey many, many miles, and I'd go and attach myself to their school. Now, some of these guys, the rabbis, were just operating out of houses. There was nothing particularly formal about it, and there weren't dormitories or anything, so I might just pitch down with my blanket on this guy's floor, and I would attach myself to him. The notion of discipleship changes fundamentally with Jesus. He does something, of course, slightly different, which is what we find we discover as we go on with Jesus. He turns it all upside down and says, don't choose me, I'll choose you. You come to me and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make you disciple makers. So there's a slightly new twist to discipleship that Jesus brings in. Uh, and I like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, analogy, or not analogy, illustration I suppose. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sure many will you know, a very brave German Christian um, who managed to get out of Germany under the Nazis, went to live in America for some time, but really felt called to go back into Nazi Germany and was imprisoned again for his faith and in fact was hung just a few days before the end of the war. Uh, so he really knew what the cost of discipleship was and if you want to read a great book on discipleship uh, try his. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this when Christ calls a person he bids them come and die discipleship really is the start of our surrendering to God but through that surrendering finding amazing life and it, it was reminiscent to me Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, illustration of discipleship that bit in John 12 where Jesus says I tell you unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed but if it dies, it produces many, many seeds. And I think what Jesus is inviting us to do in this passage we're looking at today is to die to ourselves, to die to our doubts, to die to our own inabilities, to die to what we, th you know, we might think we're half daft or not very schooled. Or, uh, but if you love Jesus, that's all you need. That's all you need. So let's get on to the big text itself. I'm calling it the big sending out. And we're going to just pick through uh, the verses. So verse 16 then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Very interesting, this. There's, a, there's an act of obedience. Jesus says, I've got something to tell you, but you need to come to a particular place. And I just suggest for each of us and for you as a congregation, and I don't know your setting, so if I speak into your setting, uh, it's not because I've got inside information. To hear Jesus best as his followers we really do need to be in the right place spiritually emotionally and physically 
we're less likely to hear him well if we're in the wrong place in our attitudes or our behaviours. Um, and the other thing that I find really encouraging about this, we're just going to come on to that, there's some of these disciples, we're not told the number, but some of them are doubting. Eh? That's really good. Because they haven't all got it sewn up. And yet through these 11, you and I are here today. We can trace our spiritual lineage back to those early disciples and them taking Jesus seriously about going out into the world. That is awesome. Because it also means in 100 or 200 years, if Jesus hasn't come since, there will be some Christians sat, maybe not in this building, because this one might have conked out by then. Sorry, Adrian. Uh, but, you know, they might have a huge, big new 22nd century church by then um, to replace this one. But there will be people sat here who will be worshipping as a direct result of your faithfulness in obeying the Great Commission of Jesus. Because you will have told people today, who will have told people tomorrow, who will have told people in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time. It's awesome, the extension of the family, uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a lovely word that Jesus uses. He uses the word edestazen, which is, means to hang in the balance. It means that some people were sort of doubting. They weren't quite sure. Uh, but nevertheless still Jesus pitches up and uses them. We don't have to be identical Christians. Um, if I took a slice through this congregation, you'd, probably some of you would sort of regard yourself as sort of spiritual worshipy types. You have words from the Lord quite frequently. Others of you find life all a bit mundane. You love the Lord, um, but you don't operate in that sort of way. Good for you. Jesus loves you. He works through your personality, through your temperament, you, thank God, don't have to be like me, and I, thank the Lord, don't have to be like you. Be comfortable with the skin, with the mind, with the body, the situation that the Lord's put you in. Uh, comparing ourselves to other Christians is really, really unhelpful, um, because your ministry will be terribly unique. Your setting, your situation, your home life, uh, your difficulties at work, your joys at work, will strike people in a way that someone else's just won't. Our job is simply to make people a little bit more like Jesus. And uh, then verse 18, what's Jesus say? He says, uh, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He approaches them, uh, and here we have the king of kings saying, all authority is given to me. Uh, ergo, my authority is your authority. I want you to think about a police officer for the minute. I'm not asking any of you who've been stopped recently for speeding or anything like that. But just imagine, when, um, let's imagine PC Smith, she or he's senses as a baddie somewhere, and they arrest somebody, uh, and they arrest somebody, deprive them of their liberty, take them to the police station, and eventually that person ends up in court. Now, PC Smith doesn't have that authority from the day they were born. It wasn't like they were in nappies, that they had a blue light on their head flashing like that. PC Smith only derives his or her authority as a constable where the state, the Queen, gives them authority to attain someone of their liberty simply because they're operating as a police officer. Now, we operate as disciples. When we operate as disciples, all authority in heaven on earth is given to us. Now, you probably don't even need a refresher on the good news, but I always like to get it in. For me, there's two key elements. Romans 6.23, just a refresher. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And John 3.16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That, for me, if, if we hold on to those two things when we're sharing the good news of Jesus, that's all we need. There's, there are some more bits and pieces, but at its heart, if we had to boil down uh, the message that Jesus is inviting us to share, it's those two key elements. And he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is our key task. Now, for some of us, that will mean going abroad on mission. It will mean doing classic uh, mission work, Baptist Missionary Society, Open Door, you know, all these, all these sorts of ministries. Um, it may mean for some people going to Newcastle or Scotland or Wales or London but for many of you, it will mean making disciples of all peoples everywhere in this locality. You know, our feet are planted here. So where you work, where you study, where you relax, where you play sport, that's where Jesus has called you to minister. It's no big surprise that he's put you into a particular context. And then we get this commission to baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, sound Baptists, I really don't need to go into this morning the, the wonderful uh, thing that happens as we obey Jesus. Safe to say, it took me till my late 20s to obey the Lord. I came to him in my teens. Uh, I'd been christened as a baby. And I always said, when the time's right, I shall be baptised. And eventually the time did become right, and I was baptised. And uh, it was just a, it was a lovely act of obedience. Um, and Jesus says, just get them in, disciple them, teach them, show them my ways, share them my message. The word disciple as a verb appears over 240 times in the gospel and acts. The noun appears less than 45 times. This is about doing stuff. It's not having theories, it's not having programs, it's not having workbooks, it's about being. It's about this morning, as we go out there, looking for opportunities. Uh, it's lifestyle, it's certainly not formula. John 7.37 says this, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water shall flow through them. By this he meant the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. John 7, 37. And then in Acts 1, 8, Jesus says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus invites us to be enabled by his Holy Spirit to be disciple makers. We'll come back to that in a minute. He also speaks of rivers of living waters flowing through, not just trickles, not streamlets, but rivers, powerful rivers. You think of the, uh, the problems they've got in Thailand at this, mo the, the, this morning where they've got uh, rivers which are overflowing their banks, sweeping all before them. That's the sort of imagery that Jesus is using. He's not talking about a timid little brook or a stream or a rhyme. And I'll just simply throw this teaser in. In the same way that we don't regard the baptism physically that the apostles experienced as being a proxy for us. So uh, I don't think we should regard 
Jesus' instruction to wait for power on high as something that was just for then. It's something for now. It's something for now. We need this continual equipping of the Holy Spirit to minister uh, Jesus' love. It's a spiritual discipline. He's waiting for us to improve our practice. Now, I'd like to um, take stock a couple of ways. I'm going to ask you that one of those first funny questions, which is, what do you smell like? Has anybody got any allergies to perfumes around here before I... You have, right. I won't do it up there. Just thought I'd... I'd do it over here, all right? Um, I won't spray it in your face. But this is some body shop stuff. Now, hopefully, you'll get an, a nice whiff over there, and hopefully, you won't get a whiff over there. The point of my question is this. In 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 thereafter, um, Paul writes this, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. Yeah, you can't get it. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Put your wrist out, chum. Go on, go on. You can have it there. You smell beautiful then. And... Um, uh, <laughs> There is this notion uh, that we find in, in, in Corinthians about the aroma, uh, the fragrance of Jesus. There should be something that we're sharing that is positively different. And he goes on to talk about uh, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ in verse 15 amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who's equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit, but on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. We're to share this lovely aroma, this fragrance of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 and following. We're not in the business of building up a particular fellowship. We're in the business of setting people free. Free to worship, free to live, free to make mistakes, free to do things differently from us. Jesus doesn't want identical Christians. He just wants obedient followers. We're mission. We're mission. We are mission in action. That's our calling. We're witness bearers. We bear witness to what Jesus has done in our lives. We each have a story to tell about how we encountered Jesus. That is so powerful. We're not all evangelists, thank heavens. Evangelists are great. They're great in the life of the church, but they can be very in your face and they can make people squirm. But they're used mightily by God. And I thank God for every evangelist I know, but some of them are hard work to live with. It's just the way they're wired. They're very, very focused. But we each have a role to play. Uh, Very, very, very interesting, this. A guy called Dr. James Kennedy worked out that if you were... um, a very effective evangelist who had a ministry that brought a thousand people a night to Jesus Christ. It would take in excess of 10,000 years to win the world for Jesus. But if you and I, once a year, were to bring someone to faith, and that person once a year brought someone to faith, then ignoring population explosion, it would take 32 years. Now that doesn't really come as a big surprise because Jesus is about building relationship. He's about restoring, about reconciling us to the Father through him. And so it's no real big surprise that the most effective way of discipling, of seeing the kingdom grow, is through each of us individually just sharing a little bit about our story. We sometimes pin a lot of hopes on the evangelist. 
And actually, I think sometimes, if we look deep within, we're, we're almost asking the evangelist to do the dirty work of the kingdom for us. In other words, we're not quite sure. I want to tell you a couple of stories. Um, and uh, the, the scripture I want to relate to it is James 4.2, where it says, you have not because you ask not. And I, I just simply throw this, this question out to you. Have you asked specifically? Don't, don't answer it, but it's just a question. Have you asked specifically for an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with a particular neighbour, with a particular co-worker, um, someone you play football with or tennis or in a mum's group or whatever? I want to tell you just a couple of stories. They're a bit, one of them's a bit historic now. And I'm telling you the story because it shows how an ordinary person can be. As I used to teach, I, don't teach, I didn't teach for the most of my career. I did something completely different. But I did teach. And about 30 years ago, um, I was in a class. And a lad came out of the class. We were doing some quiet work. We'd done some group work. We were doing some quiet work. And he was a, a lovely little Yorkshire accent. So I'm going to do a very bad Yorkshire accent now. His name was John, John Hookvale. He had, spoke with a lisp. Sir, I want to become a Christian. And you could, you could hear the rest of the class go dead, dead quiet. And I thought, oh. I said, well, come see me after school. So I was very keen that professionally you didn't mix you know, evangelism with what you were paid to do. So he came to see me after school. And we went through his understanding and we talked it through. I said, look, if you, uh, if you want to become a Christian, why don't you, before you go to bed tonight, just get on your knees before the Lord and uh, you can pray something like this. And we talked it through. So he said, fine, that's great. So he did that. And um, he had bought with him another lad called Jonathan, who had heard him ask in class that he wanted to become a Christian. So there were two of them I was speaking to. So this was a bit amazing. Anyway, they came to see me the next break time, and there were three of them. There was a young lad called Gary, and um, I, I was a bit confused at this point because we'd had one, then we had two, and then we had three. And apparently Gary had been walking home with Jonathan and John, and they told him what it was all about, and he decided he wanted to become a Christian as well. So before they'd gone to bed that night, in their own bedrooms, they'd each prayed to the Lord that he'd come in and deal with their sin and give them new life. And uh, I just asked them to describe what they, what, they, what they felt. And one said, oh, I felt like Superman. I thought, oh, dodgy theology there. But then I thought, no, uh, you know, uh, if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. I think that's just, about, that's just about okay. One of them said he felt like he'd had a blood transfusion. These were lads who weren't particularly versed in the scriptures, which speaks to me of new life. And the third one said it was, he felt as if he'd just got out of a steaming hot bath and felt as clean as he'd ever felt in his whole life. Isn't that a lovely sort of picture of what baptism's all about? Um, and that arose, I think, out of some very general prayers that I'd been praying at the time, just for an opportunity to, to, to witness. Um, there's another story I would tell you, but I won't tell you today because we're running out of time. Um, I want to just talk about the style we do stuff in. 1 Thessalonians 2 gives us a model to follow. Uh, the, the, in, in there we read, Instead we were like young children, verse 7, among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the good news of God, but our lives as well. Delighted to share with you not only the good news of God, but our lives as well. That's what authenticates our message. We don't just go to people with doctrine. We don't just go and tell them stuff and facts. We actually share meals with them. We do things with them. We open up ourselves. We talk about our hopes, our fears, our dreams. 
Actually, people out there, I think, would be quite surprised if they felt we'd got it all completely sewn up. I think it's much more authentic as believers to say, yeah, and I'm still wrestling this through with God because it's, it's, about, uh, it's about authentic Christian living. It's not sanctimonious. It's not about rules. Um, we're in the business of setting people completely free, free in their conscious consciences to follow where they believe Jesus is calling them free to become like Jesus as I said before free thank goodness not to become exactly like us because actually being us sometimes would be a real pain for them um, a tough question are we known for being critical sharp self-righteous sort of people people who go to church on Sunday and actually a wee bit distant or are we known as being generous hearted Chuck Swindle asked this question or says this statement, a relaxed, easygoing Christian is far more attractive and effective than the rigid, uptight believer who squeaks when they walk. I like that. Do you squeak when you walk or are you relaxed? And then finally, in verse 20, Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, what is it Jesus actually taught us? Well, if we zip back into Matthew 22, we have there the record of the greatest command. Uh, do you remember he's asked what the greatest things are? And Jesus says this in verse 37 of Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what we're to teach. The whole life dedicated to God. Where there's no divide between spiritual with secular. The recognition that we can be a spiritual, changing a nappy, cooking supper painting a picture, playing tennis, doing some engineering, serving in a shop, waiting in a bus queue, playing our favourite track, uh, whatever. It's a whole life. We adopted a slightly Greek mindset in the early days of the church, which thought of some things as being spiritual and some things as being secular. Biggest lie that's confounded the church for centuries. Everything we do, if you wash your car, you can do it spiritually. You can be speaking to God about it. There is absolutely nothing that is beyond his wit. And uh, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Well, how do we love ourselves? We haven't got time to unpack that this morning. We've only got about another five minutes before I want to wrap up. But do we love ourselves or do, do we loathe ourselves? It's quite a crucial question, this, because we're told, we're told by Jesus love your neighbour as yourself truth is if we don't really like ourselves very much it's going to be blooming hard to, uh, to love our neighbour or we're actually going to end up in some sort of split mind where we sort of don't really like ourselves but we go all out to love other people because that's good for the kingdom maybe if there's one message this morning if there's one thing you hang on to from this message ask the Lord to help you start to love yourself and your situation just a little bit more and you say to me ah oh, but you know the self is a wicked bad thing and we're to deny ourselves yes absolutely true but Jesus says this he's very categoric if you don't know how to love yourself if you're not content with yourself and the way he's wired you you're going to be utterly utterly hopeless in discipling people effectively so really tough nut to crack and it, it took me it took me too too long to discover that right as we wrap up 
We're on the home straight now. We're at the 25-minute mark. And uh, Andy said, I could preach that to 40, but I said, no, that'd be a bit rude. I'll wrap up around about 25 to 30 minutes. We did have a subsequent joke about three hours, but that was a joke. Um, I want to rattle through this. Matthew 4 and 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. So we have a ministry of healing by Jesus while he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Paul's assessment, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with a wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Romans 15, verses 18. I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I've fully proclaimed, fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Bear in mind, Paul, not one of the original apostles. So any arguments about, oh, well, it was different for the apostles, really pulls the rug under that argument. Miracles are part of the gospel proclamation, demonstrating that the kingdom of God is here. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And finally, the words of Jesus himself in the parallel passage to our text from Matthew today, we find the abbreviated text uh, in, in Mark 16. He said to them, go into the whole world, preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they'll drive out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them. They'll place their hands on sick people and they'll get well. Now I have to say my own experience is limited in these things. I've seen these things occasionally, but I haven't seen them as much as I think the New Testament encourages me to want to see them. I don't see any evidence in the, Holy, in, in, in the Holy Scriptures, in the New Testament, for any withdrawal of these gifts. There's nowhere really that says these were for just a season. And so I suppose the challenge is, when you go disciple-making, do you expect the Holy Spirit to pitch up, or do you kind of sense you're at it on your own, doing it out of a bit of a drudge, and, you know, you may get there in the end, but hey. Are you happy to be regarded as crazy for Christ? Because I think trying to make disciples without seeking the Holy Spirit's practical assistance is a bit like trying to play tennis without a racket. You can do it. You can do it. But it's very painful. It's pretty ineffective. And you'll probably lose most matches. But we've been a bit shy about saying it. We are bearers of the greatest good news, the Evangelion, the greatest good news in the world. It's not just some old news that you carry about in an old carrier bag. It's something to be proud of. And why, why, why does Jesus say, make disciples? Well, Romans 10, 14 gives us a bit of a clue. How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. A lift right from Isaiah 52. So if you're disciple-making, you've got beautiful feet. I said I was going to ask you a couple of questions. And I think I'd prefer to have beautiful feet than squeaky feet. 
the squeaky feet of Chuck Swindle's rigid believer. So as we, uh, as we draw to a close now, and I'm sorry it's been such a race, but uh, lots of stuff to consider there. What have we done? We've looked at some working definitions for evangelism and discipleship. We've made our way through the passage, and uh, what I've tried to do is show that it's not formulaic, it's about lifestyle, it's about us engaging with Jesus, it's about seeking the Holy Spirit's assistance. Uh, and I've asked us to challenge ourselves about whether it's in our spiritual DNA. Is this really important stuff for us? Because you have all the programs in the world, but they'll just lead to frustration. The most effective means of church growth and the growth of the kingdom is through our own obedience. And I would urge you, open yourselves to the Holy Spirit in every situation where you're seeking to make a disciple. Let God surprise you. Let God surprise you. He may, give you, he may do something extraordinary that he's never done before. He may give you a word for someone that speaks right into their situation, that unlocks their situation. It might be about healing. It might be about hurt from the past. If you get a bizarre thought, it's not because you fabricated it. It's probably because there's a nudge of God's Holy Spirit whispering because they want uh, the Holy Spirit, Father, and Jesus. They want that person brought into the kingdom. So, there we are. Uh, and you, yes, you know that you smell nice and you've got lovely feet. So there we are, we're done. I've achieved Andy's brief of about half an hour. <laughs>